Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Adele Walton, stepping in for Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. Over the next few weeks, I'll be discussing some key issues around international development. This week, I speak to Assad Raymond, Director of War on Want and Organiser for Climate, Racial, Economic and Social Justice. Today, Assad and I discuss how global inequality is reproduced by colonial legacies and the need for an anti-colonial climate justice movement. Thank you so much to all our amazing patrons who make this show possible. If you want access to full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr Cornell West, support us at patreon.com slash aworldtowinpod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please do give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at aworldtowinpod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who have let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Assad Raymond on why we must all be activists. Hi Assad, thank you so much for joining us today on this episode. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And, uh, and thank you for the kind invitation to be able to join you today. It's great to be speaking with you. So... The first wave of the pandemic really thrust into the limelight global inequality and the impacts of COVID were disproportionately felt by those most marginalised. Now with the new variant, we are witnessing the impacts of these inequalities in global access to vaccines. Can you explain a little bit about what's happening with vaccine apartheid and what actually this term means? So what we're seeing, if you remember uh, our own Prime Minister, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, at the the start of this COVID pandemic said, no one is safe until everyone is safe. And we all recognise that this is a global crisis. It's something that affects all of us. And right from the beginning of the pandemic, instead of the global community coming together, richest countries coming together with the poorest and saying, this is a common problem. We will resolve it collectively and we will make sure and we support everybody to go to get through this crisis. Recognising, of course, that for many countries, particularly in the global south, the COVID pandemic is just one of the crises that they are being faced with and is that are, is overwhelming them. So at the start of the pandemic, instead of rich countries supporting less well-off countries in dealing with a pandemic and recognising that this wasn't the only crisis that was being faced by countries in the global south. They were reeling already from a climate crisis. They were already reeling from a crisis of inequality and poverty. Rich countries competed with the poorest countries for life-saving treatments and and, and, and equipment, PPE, etc. Mm-hmm. And then when poorer countries, whose health systems had largely been privatised, as a result of policies by Western countries, structural adjustment programs Mm. that had their economies hollowed out, were being overwhelmed and weren't able to use the tools that rich countries were using. If you remember, rich countries basically threw away the rule book of neoliberalism. They directly intervened into their labour economy. They pumped billions into protecting the health of their citizens. They put money into uh, amplifying and, and, and building up their health systems. All of those things, they were denied to poorer countries. And for a year, poorer countries were literally left to face this crisis by themselves. And when there was support that was offered to them 
through things like the International Monetary Fund, the majority of the support that was given to them was in the form of debt, more debt-creating loans. And as a country is in the Global South spiraling into even further debt, so you had a situation, for example, countries in the Global South were sending something close to over $800 billion in unsustainable debt repayments to the Global North, whilst at the very same time not being able to invest that money into protecting the well-being or the health of their citizens. And then, of course, we have the amazing vaccines come on stream, largely a result of public investment, research and development funded by our taxpayer dollars and pounds. They were handed over, that those treatments were handed over to big pharmaceutical companies. And countries of the global south said, look, what we have to do, we have to recognise this pandemic knows no borders. It makes sense for all everybody in the world to be vaccinated. Let's make those vaccines freely available to every citizen all around the world. Rich countries, including the United Kingdom, the United States, the European Union, refused. They put the profits of their big pharmaceutical companies ahead of the health of people in the global south. And so we get a situation now where many citizens in the global north are on their third vaccination. And yet in countries in the global south, less than 6% of people have been vaccinated. And in that midst, we see, of course, new strains of COVID being identified and potentially ravaging millions of people. And and let's be clear, you know, whilst official figures say 5 million deaths have occurred as a result of COVID, studies show that actually the accurate number is probably closer to 10 million and Mm -hmm. hundreds of millions of people have obviously had life-changing illnesses. So that's what the apartheid, COVID apartheid and vaccine apartheid has done. It's created a system where if you're wealthy in the global north, you have access to these treatments and to these vaccines. But if you're not, if you're in the country, if you're in the global south, then you're basically being thrown and being left to deal with this crisis by yourself. Yeah, and as you say, you know, it's really clear that this is just one crisis that the global south in particular are bearing the brunt of. And when the richest 1% have more than twice the wealth of 6.9 billion people, the impact of this cannot even be articulated, the extent to which these impact the poorest on the planet. So I wanted to ask you a little bit, because you do talk a lot about neocolonialism and imperialism and the impacts of these. I wanted to ask, what is the colonial origin of global inequality? So as Warren Monk, we always say, you know, poverty is political, right? It's not a natural situation. Mm. It's a result of political and economic decisions. And if we look back, right through back, and we can go all the way back to slavery, right through to colonialism and, and imperialism, and now through to neoliberalism, we see a world that has been created that overwhelmingly benefits the richest in the world, the global north, and has put in policies in place that reinforce that, that maintain those inequalities. So we have a situation where, of course, we live in a world of absolute abundance. There is no shortage of wealth or technology. But what we have is most of that wealth is being accumulated in the global north by a small elite of people. And we've set up an economic system which has basically been about profit accumulation from the exploitation of either people or unnatural resources. And whether that's been through the gunboats of colonialism or shackles of slavery or through to the noose of imperialism and neoliberalism, the same situation has continued. 
that mm. wealth is overwhelmingly from the global south to the global north. If we take, for example, the, just the last, since 1980, you know, since 1980, something like $16 trillion has flowed from the global south to the global north. And whether that's been in, in capital flow, in illicit tax, or in unsustainable debt repayments. And of course, that's just a drop in the ocean to the trillions that the global north exploited from the global south during colonial periods. 45 trillion from the Indian subcontinent alone during the British Raj. And all of those have created colonial structures, but they've also created a colonial mindset, which is that some parts of the world and some people, overwhelmingly black, brown, indigenous, the poor, can be sacrificed. And it's this logic which underpins both the crisis of inequality, the COVID pandemic, and now the climate crisis. Yeah, and, you know, you talked a lot at COP um, and about the decisions being made there. You did expose these as empty promises. You called them a betrayal of the people. And like you say, continually, certain populations are seen as disposable in this process of accumulation economic growth. So, you know, how did you feel coming away from COP and seeing that play out? Well, as, as you've rightly said, I, I mean, it's a betrayal of people. It was a betrayal of science. It was a betrayal of justice. And the COP was uh, a hugely frustrating, disappointing space. It was deliberately structured in a way that was inaccessible and inequitable, particularly mm -hmm. for those from the global south. The UK presidency constructed the actual space of the negotiations in a way that many of us who are the eyes and the ears and the voices of society were barred from the spaces. We were not able to be in negotiating rooms. We're not able to input and, and support developing countries of the global south. And so the outcome was somewhat inevitable in what occurred. But the copy, you know, is a reflection of our global economy and mm. our world, uh, the inequities and injustices of, and imbalances of power, the richest countries in the world basically got their way. And if you and if you can look through, I mean, it's quite incredible that we, you know, if you listen to the speeches of rich country leaders at the beginning, including the prime minister, who said we're at one minute to midnight, is how he opened his speech at the high level leader summit. And yet their outcome is basically to push responsibility for acting on the climate crisis to the poorest the ones who are the least responsible for this crisis. So it was a completely frustrating space. And, and the decisions that, have made, that were made there, I mean, are literally sacrificing people in the global south. Mm -hmm. Whether we look at the UK government promoting the net zero 2050 goal as a response to the growing call and recognition of the importance of not breaching the 1.5 degree guardrail and if you remember, we had August, we had climate scientists tell us it's code red for humanity, that we're on the edge of the precipice. We all could see from our own television screens, killer floods, fires, famines, wreaking havoc all around the world. These are all things that were occurring at just over one degree of warming. And climate scientists told us we cannot allow temperatures to breach the 1.5 because we'll spiral into runaway climate change. Instead of a 1.5 degree cup, we're heading towards a three degree cup. That's what, if all the promises, and they are just promises, if mm -hmm. those promises are met, 
they get take us to at least 2.7 degrees, if not three degrees. We saw rich countries basically doing carbon colonialism. Um, what remains, and it's a small amount of carbon that we're, is left of the carbon budget, they want to even colonize that. They want to take even more of, of, the, of what's remaining and not do their fair share of effort. When it came to the finance, you know, I mean, incredibly, I, I remember standing in, in, in the halls in Copenhagen and hearing the then uh, Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, promise the $100 billion in new and additional finance to uh, less well-off countries to help them cut their emissions, but also adapt to the realities of the climate crisis. And 12 years later, we've seen rich countries again say we've not been able to meet that promise of $100 mm. billion. In fact, the majority of the money that's been put on the table so far, 80% of it is in more debt-creating loans. So you've got the richest countries burning the planet and then making the poorest not only deal with this crisis, but then say, well, you're going to go deeper into debt as a result of our actions. Developing countries said, look, we have been overwhelmed already by the climate crisis. We need help right now. And instead, rich countries, this, you know, on loss and damage, which some people call reparations, some people call loss and damage. But it's a recognition that, you know, the, the, the climate crisis is not something that's happening in the future. It's happening right now to, for, for millions of people. We can see it in the lives and livelihoods destroyed, in people's homes being wrecked. Um, and developing countries are just not able to respond to that. And one telling way of an example of that was we saw floods in Germany over the summer, and we saw mm. floods taking place across the continent of Africa. Germany allocated 30 billion euros to deal with those floods. That's not money that the countries in the global south were able to allocate because for them, these climate impacts are not just happening once every few years. They're happening year upon year. They're overwhelming them. One simple storm wiped out the island of Dominica's GDP by 200%. That's literally every road, every public building, every school, every hospital flattened. And when they said to the rich countries, you created this problem, you need to help us, all they got was, well, we're happy to talk about it, but we're not accepting liability for a problem that obviously that they're responsible for. You make the case for reparations um, and you do argue for the importance of this when it comes to resolving the balance of power and also ensuring that poorer countries are able to cope with the consequences of climate degradation, which predominantly they have not caused. Can you talk to us a little bit about how important it is for reparations? Look, it's absolutely critical. We, you know, we, we all know what needs to be done, right? We all know that to solve this climate crisis, you need to solve the crisis of of inequality and poverty alongside it. So as War on One, we've been working with our partners on this idea of a, a radical global Green New Deal. So we know you have to limit temperatures below 1.5. So that means every country doing its fair share. And a fair share of, a, of the rich countries' responsibility for the 1.5, they would need to be at zero by 2030. And that in, would still not be their fair share. The UK's fair share of 1.5, is minus 200% by 2030. That's how much we are responsible for the carbon that's in the atmosphere that's causing this violence and damage. We know we need to tackle inequality and poverty. We know the only way to do that is have 
living wages, social protection, universal public services. They are critical policies that determine your life chances, not only in terms of dealing with the climate crisis, but the crisis of inequality, the crisis of COVID, etc. And of course, the third is we, are, we have to live within our planetary limits. So we cannot have transitions in the global north based on a new wave of extraction of materials in the global south with huge environmental injustices, polluting air, land, water, forcing people from their homes and, of course, being responsible for the murder of environmental defenders at minimum at two a week that is occurring each and every year. But for the developing countries and the countries of the global south to be able to transition, you need finance. You need finance and technology. It's no good saying to poorer countries, transition away from this dirty development pathway, because quite rightly, they say, how can we do that? You control our resources. You've extracted all the wealth of those resources. We have developed you as the global north. There now needs to be a rebalancing of the global economy. There needs to be a, mm. an equitable sharing of our wealth and resources. And so that is what reparations is. We need the money to be able to transition and protect our citizens and ensure that our citizens, like yours, have the right to live with dignity. Look, the UN agency, UNCTAD, says you need at least $1.7 trillion each and every year for the next decade. You have got estimates that are saying you need $2.4 trillion. You've got even higher. What we do know is that the money that's being put on the table, even the $100 billion, which they have not met, as I said, is a drop in the ocean to the true scale of what is needed. Now, it might sound a lot, but let's remember that the richest countries miraculously found close to 18 trillion when they needed to bail out the banks at the 2008 mm. financial crisis. They found 16 trillion in response to the COVID pandemic. They find there is never a question that there's not enough money in terms of our military spending or anything else that the global north wants to find. So this call for reparations is a, is a recognition, both not only of the need for the transition, but recognizing the harm that the global north has done on the global south and that it needs to repair that harm and one way to repair that harm is finance but also we need to uproot those very systems of exploitation that lock in the global south into poverty and inequality so reparations both has a financial aspect to it but it also goes much much deeper that we need to think about our fixing the global economy on taxation on trade on the power of corporations and those go alongside the call for more money Absolutely. And I think that links really strongly to resistance to capitalism in the global south and how indigenous activists and um, people across the global south have always held the intersections between colonial extraction and corporate capitalism at the core of their movements. I wanted to ask, how have these movements influenced the conversations that we are now seeing start to unfold in the global north around racial capitalism as a system of extraction and exploitation? Well, for, for movements in the global south, you know, they've always understood these crises have been intersectional. If you look mm. at the formulation of our movements, they don't see issues in silos. That's really a luxury of the global north that they see the fight against climate as being the fight separate from the fight against poverty and equality, being separate from the fight around trade or tax, etc. That's the movements in the global south have always understood that this is a systemic crisis. And so mm. their movements have always analysed that and have always worked in all of those spaces, putting forward their demands. Now, 
for many years, the movements of the global south have said, where is the internationalist movement in the global north? Because for the last decade, even progressive movements in the global north have largely been focused internally on their own nation states. Now, we can say, of course, there is a logic and a reason for that happening, crisis of austerity. But what it meant was that internationalism absolutely disappeared and people didn't think about what was happening to the rest of the world, to the movements that were fighting and what solidarity meant, but also the demands of those movements. And with the climate crisis, over the last couple of years, suddenly our movements have begun to understand through a lot of hard work that this crisis is not a crisis of carbon. It's a crisis. It is a systemic crisis. It's a crisis of injustice. And once you begin to understand that, you start to look and say, OK, so what are the demands? And then you suddenly realize that the demand isn't end fossil fuels, full stop, or end fossil fuels, 100% renewable energy. It becomes a demand around public control of energy, of the right to energy, so of tackling energy poverty, of having equitable distribution of energy. Remembering half the world, at this in 2021, half the world doesn't have access to electricity or clean cooking. Yet we in the global north consume between 16 and 25 times more energy than the global average. So we consume way more than we're able than we should, whilst denying other people the right to consume any energy. Mm. And that understanding of internationalism and understanding then of the system. And once you start to unpack this system, so this was not racialized capitalism, it begins to help us understand not just the present but the past, but also helps us understand what is likely to happen in the future. And so those movements have reminded the global movement, the movements of the, of the global north, look, we've been fighting this not just for the last five years, not just for the last decades. This has been a fight that has been, been going on for decades and decades from the global south. And if we remember, there's a reason why the global south is locked into this into this crisis that it is is at the moment and that when our movements have risen up in the global south whether it's been through patrice lumumba in the congo or mossadegh in iran or Allende mm. in chile or albenz in guatemala who said we want to build a society in our economy that serves the well-being of our own citizens they were violently overthrown dictatorships were put in their place the interests of corporations were were became the primary objective and so this has been a what I always like, you know, it's a, it's a historical fight from the global south. We in the global north have recently come to the table and said, ah, we mm. understand now of what you've been saying. This is a this is a systemic crisis. Now we are beginning to understand that we need to stand with you, not just in terms of on solidarity, but we need to stand and amplify your voice and your demands. And that is remaking. I think at this moment, a new movement, a movement approach and a new movement of, of around justice, climate, economic, racial, gender, uh, social and political justice. And those movements are beginning to, to, to come together because they understand you can't fix this problem by fixing it only by tinkering around the edges. Absolutely. And, you know, all of these issues are issues of social justice, but also development. However, 
you know, Western notions of development have often been defined through an economic lens, and they've also been very paternalist, and they have erased the agency of marginalised people, indigenous people, and people who have long been resisting uh, the system of capitalism and colonial histories as well. So I wanted to ask you, how do our approaches to international development need to change? And how can we avoid this kind of continued paternalistic notion of development, which is characterised by, you know, often white saviourism and a superiority complex? So uh, for, for many, many years, you know, those of us who stood alongside the Global South movements have always critiqued what we would say the aid paradigm right this is not mm-hmm. aid we're not fighting for 0.7% we're we're fighting for you know an equitable sharing of the resources of the world and recognizing that this is again not aid and it's not charity that the global south is asking for mm-hmm. it's asking for justice and therefore it comes back to in terms of the reparations and the scale of money that is needed now for too long too many in the in the what i would call in the global north particularly in what is called the development space are always their starting point is how do we work within this particular system to ameliorate the worst impacts of this particular system right of this economic model recognizing that that's just an impossibility but that's what we're told right like we're told for example there's a story that's told that world poverty has uh, improved because mm-hmm. of the actions of development over these last decades. Are, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. The only criteria which you can say world poverty has changed is if you believe that world poverty should only be recognised at the $1.90 a day, which is basically recognising people who are not not living in poverty, they're just not starving to death and not dying. Mm-hmm. If you actually take poverty levels as a whole, half the world lives on the equivalent of $5.50. That's three and a half billion people on on the equivalent of $5.50, not on $5.50, on the equivalent. Mm -hmm. The equivalent is what $5.50 would buy you in the United States, which is basically a bottle of milk and a loaf of bread. So that's the equivalent. If we want to move beyond that, of that aid paradigm, and to actually say everybody should have the right to live with dignity, then we should be saying the minimum that everybody should have in the global uh, globally is $15 a day. And therefore, that changes our how we consider ourselves and our work here in the UK and our work globally. If we're fighting for £15 an hour here in the UK for workers, we should at least be fighting for $15 a day for workers in the global south. If we're saying that, you know, the development paradigm, we don't want people to be following the paradigm of of dirty development of the global north, well, then you need to talk about large-scale finance and technology. Now, too many of the global north balk at that and say, it's just not possible, it's not pragmatic for us to be talking about transfers of trillions from the global north to the global south. Why not? Mm -hmm. Why, why isn't it? If we, if we can talk mm-hmm. about that the billionaire, the 2,800 billionaires over the last year, we, you know, had an increase of five and a half trillion in wealth. Not they just made five and a half trillion. That's just their additional wealth that they accumulated in one year. Why can't we talk about 
wealth taxes for the mm. for the rich? Why can't we talk about fixing our trade systems, which locking these development paradigms that force the countries of the global south to be export commodity, to drive exports, to fuel the consumption of a global economy overwhelmingly for citizens in the global north? Why can't we talk about actually that fixing this system means actually overturning this system and putting something else in its place. Now, until we are willing to grasp that this crisis is so deep and so systemic and therefore its solutions need to be systemic and transformational, then we're simply tinkering around the edges and we're fooling ourselves that all any of these things actually will, will deliver the kind of justice that is needed. At best, of course, they put sticking plaster on the situation and that... In, of course, it's important mm. when you're on, on, on the edge of life and death. Of course, communities want that help. But we have to ask ourselves, why is it they're poor? Not how do we help them? And if once we start to ask ourselves, why is it people are poor? Then we need to be uh, dealing with the answer. And we know that the reason people are poor, the reason people feel face injustice is as a result of political decisions made in our capitals then you have a very, very different analysis and a very, very different kind of movement and a very, very different set of demands to make about your own governments. You know, it's so clear that the case for degrowth, redistribution of wealth and reparations is so strong in order for us to achieve economic and social justice. But when our culture is so committed to upholding growth, which reproduces inequality, how can we achieve transformative change? So maybe it's not the most helpful word, degrowth, because, of course, whether if, you're, if you're poor in the global north and you're basically barely surviving on zero-hour contracts, working two or three jobs on poverty pay and living in poor housing, mm-hmm. and you're told, you've got to degrowth. Well, well, I've very little already. You're asking me to have even less. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the people in the global south who have absolutely nothing, you're telling them not to have, not to grow. So we know there needs to be sustainable growth. So we have to move this discussion away from less to better. So mm-hmm. what does a, a society and an economy that prioritizes people's living with dignity or well-being, whatever word we want to use, what does that look like? And that clearly runs counter to our current economic system, which says we can continue to grow. We can continue to exploit the finite resources on this planet. Now, that's just untenable. Right? It's untenable when scientists tell us that a sustainable level, of, for example, of resource use is about 50 billion tonnes a year. We're about 80 billion now, and we're about to double it within the coming decades. Now, that requires a fundamental reorientation of our economy to suit and put people at its heart and not put profit accumulation. That's a very, very Mm. different pathway. Suddenly you move away from things like saying the answer is going to be hundreds of millions of electric cars, and you start thinking about how do we make our cities sustainable? How do Mm. we have free public transport? You start to think about what is the care economy look like? What do we value? And, of course, over this last year in the pandemic, more and more people, I think, are beginning to join the dots and realise mm-hmm. the very things that are the worst paid in this country, the worst things that people think have given the least worth to, have been the most critical. It's been our frontline workers, it's been our public transport, it's been our health workers that are the most important thing. And our sense of community has been critical in terms of people being able to both 
survive the pandemic, but also see the inequities and injustices within our own societies and, of course, between our societies. So for me, this moment is a, is a, is a really profound one. Mm. There are two pathways ahead of us. There's one which is what we've been told, which is basically more of the same and a supercharged capitalism, uh, hand over even more power to corporations and corporations will be the solutions. And we could see that even during the COP, coalition, uh, COP uh, summit, if you look at the UK government's so-called announcements that it was making literally every day, all of them were basically saying with multinationals, these are the companies that are going to save us. The very companies and multinationals that have taken us to the brink of disaster mm-hmm. and we're now being told are going to be our solutions. The only way that they are going to be our solutions is if you accept that the majority of the world will be sacrificed. If you don't accept that, then it takes you to a different pathway and saying, okay, so what does our economy, what is the goal of our economy? If the goal of the economy is growth, that's unsustainable. It's inequitable and it's unjust. If the goal, if the goal of your economy is well-being and care, you have a very, very different economy. You talk about globalization in a very, very different way. You talk about supply chains in a very, very different way. And you talk about what a sustainable society and economy looks like. That Those are literally the only two options on the table. And I think it's it's finally, finally after decades of in the global north, where too much of even progressive movements have fought over how do we divide the spoils of capital accumulation and exploitation of the global south to actually beginning to ask the question, who's constructed this pie? Not what slice of it do we get? Who's constructed it? How can we make sure it's equitably shared and how can we make sure it's sustainable and uh, within our planetary limits? So it's a, I think it's, pro, it's the most profound question that faces us because mm-hmm. we're at a moment now, it's not, is change going to happen? We, it's, question of change is going to happen Mm -hmm. the only issue that is up for debate is what kind of change Mm -hmm. who will benefit and who will be sacrificed and that's why that broader conversation what i would call about sustainable economics ecological economy degrowth whatever word people want to use for it has to sit very very central And, and it brings together really importantly the question of both class race and gender and internationalism in a way that we have not seen for at least 100 years. It's brought Mm -hmm. those principles together and it can birth a really global movement with shared principles and shared demands. Thank you so much, Asad. That's really picked me up and lifted my mood at the end of that conversation. So I really appreciate you coming on today and talking to us. My pleasure. And, you know, I would say this, this moment requires all of us. Mm. This is nobody else is going to come and be the savior. It's, it's us. There is no. This is not about a fight for the future. This is about a fight for the present. Mm. And in this fight for the present, everybody is a climate justice activist. Everybody has to be a racial justice activist. Mm-hmm. Everybody has to be an economic justice activist. That's this fight, and we have everything to gain. Champion.